0: You're listening to WP Radio I'm your host Terry Doherty and this is an OIAA podcast on today's episode of WP Radio we have Ian Mendez of EFI Global and Chris Andrews of Canadian Decon Solutions I want to thank them for coming out to the TIAA uh, luncheon in February and providing us with a lot of knowledge dealing with carfentanil fentanyl it's a uh, really informative and scary all at the same time thank you
1: First off, I want to say thank you very much for the invitation to come out here this afternoon. Uh, my name's Ian Mendes. I'm with EFI Global. Um, along with me is Chris Andrews, who's from Canadian Decon Solutions. Going back, we uh, partnered up about two years ago um, to do a job in, in Pickering, and we'll get to that as part of the presentation, but we saw this opportunity that was emerging with respect to contaminated properties and contaminated vehicles. Uh, We've seen a number of opportunities since then and projects that we've been involved in. We partnered up because we sort of got together. We worked through the process of developing policies and procedures and protocols of how to go about assessing vehicles uh, and or property. And we sort of use that experience now to sort of conduct seminars like this and make people aware of the hazards and means that are available to you to deal with these situations should you encounter them. Okay, so I just want to give you a few little facts to start off with. Um, You've probably heard this quite often now. It's being used and I know North America has made this and they've classified it, the opioids, as an epidemic. Um, Figures show it's escalating at an incredible rate. Um, You're seeing a lot of more overdose deaths and we'll sort of get into that. Um, Why are you doing it? Is because again drugs are no longer pure products anymore, especially things like cocaine and heroin. Drug users and or drug dealers have taken to mixing products in order to heighten the high that you get off the product, but also to uh, increase the quality and the demand for it. Um, When it comes to heroin, if you take one kilo and sell it as is, I think the street value is about $80,000. A kilo of fentanyl can be spread out and mixed in. The revenue ranges between 1.6 to 1.9 million off that kilo. Right? You can see why people get involved, even others, you've got high-end business people. Others see opportunity on this, but we're going to get more into sort of the hazards with this. A couple of facts here. This was a case in uh, Pennsylvania. She unfortunately had a death. Her son was a drug user, died the day before. She went in to clean up the bathroom. And again, because of some of these drugs like fentanyl or carfentanil, she actually touched the product, ended up killing herself. This is more of a situation you might tend to see. Police officers pulled up a suspect, put them in custody. As he was leaving, his fellow officer noticed a powder on his shirt. He went, again, we'd all do it, brush it off. A few hours later, he passed out, took multiple doses of the, uh, an opioid antidote to recover and save his life. So. Just to give you sort of a, this is probably a more accurate representation, but heroin, of course, you know, has been around for centuries. Fentanyl, more recently, synthesized, 50 times more toxic. Carfentanyl, over five to 10, maybe five to 10,000 times more toxic. Um, what we say with carfentanyl, again, it used to be an elephant tranquilizer. How it gets into the drug industry, I don't know where they get this stuff. but but as little as a grain of salt can kill. Um, largest bust was in Pickering, where in the homeowner, again, nice residential neighborhood. They, it was, I think it was a fire alarm that came in and, and- Carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide went off. Fire department came in and counted over 13 kilos of carfentanil, right? This would have been your neighbor. Um, this is how nobody wanted to touch this job We took it on, we partnered up, we went in, we assessed this property, Um, the city was struggling because there were a number of people who came in and some said, oh yeah, we'll just walk in. The city said, no, 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 we're not comfortable with that. Um, And when that's where we started in developing procedures and protocols, um, we had a setup outside the house, we had to go in, because we didn't know, nobody knew what had gone on in that house. So how far, the interesting thing, the house was rented to another tenant upstairs. This was going on in the basement. So this is a pictorial, I guess, about the overdose levels. This is carfentanil, right? So this is sort of the just of why we're doing this. I mean, right now, there is no regulation that regards drugs. Um, but anybody who is out in the public, you as adjusters or contractors walking into a place, again, depending on the property, could face environments such as this. And it's important you recognize the signs and know who to call or when to back out. Um, so, to summarize, we've sort of together put together an approach. Um, in many cases, when you say drugs now, like I said earlier, you don't know what you're dealing with, right? How do you go about assessing it? How can you do it? We've developed a procedure. Chris has an instrument that we sort of use to, and he'll talk about this, to assess what is there. We didn't have that the first time we did this, but it's part of the evolution uh, of the process that we've developed. But we had to go in. We're gonna talk about a case study. Not always do we encounter one drug. As I said, you do mix. But we look at it from the perspective of, again, we wanna make a vehicle reusable. We wanna make a home rehabitable. And when I look at that and assess it, I'm thinking of, if it was my house and I have a baby, right, that baby is going to find things that otherwise I might not look at. So we've gone in and the job we did before, we looked at everything, including window stripping and the baseboards, and if they weren't sealed, we tore them off. Because powder can find its way behind. And if you go to do it later on and encounter that, there's going to be an issue. So. In our assessment, we're going through, we're looking at the common areas, but we're also looking at the ventilation system, how it might have been carried, what they might have been done. Um, our typical approach, if there's soft materials, we don't generally clean them, we believe you bag them. It's up to the homeowner if he wants to keep them, otherwise we recommend you destroy them. Um, it's another thing, some people wash surfaces. If you just wash it with water, you've still got a, you know, a potentially hazardous product there. Where does that go? Right? So Chris will talk about his product and why it's more advantageous. So once we've done an assessment, we look at that to come up with a decontamination plan. And again, the key there is that we want to make sure it's safe for future use. We want to make sure that we don't go through it and recontaminate as we're doing something. We want to make sure others are not walking in like in our first job we had the police. Right, You know, they got an ongoing investigation, but once we start a decontamination process, we don't want them walking in and out and tracking stuff, right, because then one of the things we do at the end is we're certifying, right, either my signature goes on or that of our industrial hygienist, right, who's part of my team, we're signing off on the documentation that we provide as to what we've done and, and certifying the results. So. When we get to the decontamination, we're working with Chris. We've had other contractors that approach us. But again, we've developed a process that we're comfortable with and we have confidence in. And the protocols have been developed in combination with each other. Uh, Health and safety is always paramount in doing this. It's not just anybody that can go in. And even from my end, the technicians that I have that do this are all hazmat trained, right? It won't just be anybody. Um, Their health and safety is paramount, so when they come out, if we don't know the drug or depending on what we're using, we go through a rigorous process on the end to decontaminate, which usually involves other bodies to spray down, because again, you go to remove something and get it on you, you've seen what can happen with carfentanil. If you're not a user, that could be toxic to them. And one of the things I recommend, uh, again, there's a lot of contractors that can come in and clean, but. And then we'll say it's clean. Whose word do you want to take on it? So, I generally recommend for coverage and from protection and from a liability standpoint that you do third party testing. And, and that's what we've done on our jobs. We usually collect a couple of other samples that we've got a lab that will analyze them um, just to verify that the work that we've done meets the medial objectives that we've established. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. In Canada, currently, There are no remedial objectives. There are no guidelines for this. You'll find some in different states and overseas. Currently, Alberta is developing a guideline for dealing with fentanyl. Fentanyl is a big problem out west. Um, That guideline, I believe, is due to be released next month. Um, I spent two days and several hours in conversation. I've been part of the team that was consulted on that because we're one of the few parties that have had experience with this. Um, The party that was putting this guideline together was pretty much doing a literature research. Nobody actually had practical experience. Um, And I actually will be going, there's going to be a stakeholder meeting for those that have been involved to sort of review this and provide input. So EFI has been involved in that process. And as I said, all our process, usually after the assessment and then after the end of the decontamination, will provide a detailed report that provides all the results and typically will be signed off by my industrial hygienist. So this is one of our case studies. Um, Again, high-end house. I don't know if you remember, this, this draws parallels for me to the movie Scarface. The only reason we found 25 of the 31 areas, and we're talking closets, everyone, had some form of drug residue. And interesting enough, it went as high as the ceiling, it was on chandeliers. So we're trying to figure out like what went on in the house that, you know, you'd get drug residue all over the place like that, but anyway. um, While cocaine was the predominant compound, we did find evidence of fentanyl, procaine, and methamphetamines in some of the rooms. So, because we had widespread drugs and we had a mix and we had it on intricate pieces of furniture, we had to come up with an assessment pro, uh, sorry, a, a decontamination program to sort of deal with that. Um, the other thing was sort of the access, garage, everything control. So, first thing we do is we lock up most of the entrances. We, we uh, remove the garage, the automatic garage opener, so you couldn't get access that way and we put a lockbox on one entrance so that we had controlled access. Then we had to decide. This was also a bit of a... And, and Chris may talk a little bit more about this. We've been trying to go through the process of looking. We recognize cost as a factor. Um, there are other agents out there that will work with some products but not necessarily as effective with others. So we've been kind of going through a bit of a research project as well. When we get opportunity, we kind of look at some of the other products to see and test and see how effective it is. So this was one of those jobs where we tried something initially, it worked, but not as effective with all the products. So Chris can speak to that when he gets up. So again, we established with this that once you leave this premises, you go through a decontamination zone, right? Where we use the same product, we spray, everyone's wearing multiple gloves, breathing apparatus, depending on what we're dealing with. Once we've sprayed the place multiple times, then we can downgrade. But typically to start, we're proceeding on the side of safety. We established, again, one of the things here was the humidity and the electrostatic properties of the cocaine, which keeps it sort of airborne and makes it difficult. So we changed the setting inside. We used moisture to try and clear the air and then remove the product. The chandeliers, we tried, we couldn't get those clean so we eventually removed them. We established negative pressure. Again, a lot of drug residue can get moved through the ventilation system. That's hard, you're not gonna tear out a whole ventilation system. But we will assess all the access points. We do go, go through quite the effort to sort of clean through the system and make sure that we vacuum out and then spray it as best as possible to reduce any potential. So here's some of the other steps. Again, we sort of said soft materials, drapes, loose material. The owner, I believe, in this case, he wanted the stuff still, right, wasn't it? Yeah, Yeah. so we bagged it all. We had bins brought in and we put it in there for him to just remove it. We deal with hard surfaces. Anything that we feel like we can treat and assure that it's clean, that's what we want to deal with. We vacuum the surfaces. Now again, when we get to that, we're going thorough. We remove all fixtures, light fixtures, covers, Uh, Vent caps, we clean all of those and spray those, but we vacuum inside and then we spray that inside as well. Walls, flooring, ceilings, cupboards, appliances, anything that's remaining, we do that. Drains, again, depending on what went on a property, a lot of times you've seen in the movies, they flush it down. We had a septic tank where we found drug residue in the septic tank. We flushed out everything, we flushed product down there, we tried to clean out the whole system. After which we've applied the product, we have a cleaning operation, where we'll either use water and or a cleaning agent to make sure whatever residue, although it's non-hazardous now, it can be, leave a sort of a, a, a tacky uh, touch to the surface. So, again, our objective is to make it rehabitable, so it's not just to treat it, we want to make sure it's clean and rendered suitable for reuse. We use a Smith detector. Anyone who's not familiar with that name, if you've gone through the airport, then you've pretty much seen it, right, where they swab your computer. It allows us to get instantaneous results, at least of the presence or absence of a drug. And it contains an exhaustive library, which periodically gets updated. So one of the challenges with this nature, the nature of this business is drugs are changing very rapidly. Right, new analogs come on, and you're only as good as what database you've got. So that's one of the challenges in trying to sort of stay and keep abreast of what's going on there, and what you may be encountering. Yes. Yes. Right. So, and and again, with that thing, we've worked it out. But if I was to use anyone else, I'd want to know what they're doing for calibrating, how often. These are all things. Otherwise, I mean, how good is the instrument? Right? That's where, as a consultant, we provide that independent assessment and objectivity. And if I'm going to sign off on a report, I want to make sure um, that the contractor is doing the job appropriately, right? and that I can stand by and put my name. He's not signing the report. right? But I would recommend for them, it's to their interest too, because if there's future liability, they don't want to encounter it. It'll only take one of these jobs or one death if there's a lawsuit. Right? How much money can you make and how much is it going to cost you? Right? And who wants that on? Personally, I don't want it on my conscience. So again, going back, I also recommend, and we did that here, we took three samples. Now, we try to keep the cost down, so what we'll do there when we're doing independent is we'll do composites. We'll wipe from surfaces across this room because all I'm looking for is any residual evidence of that drug. right? So, if I find it, then we're going to have to reassess what we did. Um, but I won't take it in the whole house, right? You know, I could save a cost, but it doesn't make economical sense to do that because if you find it, then you do in the whole house. So, we break it down and generally, in a couple of areas, based on what our assessment results are, where we may have had, in this case, where we had the mixture of drugs, we took assessment samples, we ran them by the third party, and they came back and confirmed the work that we had done. So that was all documented, this house then, it went to, I guess there was a legal case, everything went to court, our report included. So yeah, the house, I don't know if it's back up for sale right now, but we don't know if the court case is ongoing. So with that, I will let Chris take over.
0: Okay, so let's just get out. So Ian spoke to uh, some of the procedures and protocols that we use. I'm going to talk a little bit on the product that we use uh, and sort of the science behind it. Uh, the product that we use is called Delgren Decon. Uh, this product, it's manufactured in the states. It's actually used as a chemical warfare agent neutralizer. Uh, it's used by the U.S. Uh, Army, Navy, and Air Force. Uh, I have the distribution rights for this product in Canada for the next three and a half years. I can sell the product commercially. It is commercially available. It's not a restricted product, but I do have to take care and uh, track who I sell it to. Uh, The product can't be exported out of the country. Obviously, we want to ensure that we keep it out of the criminal element. So the product we have, it was developed by the US Navy. What it is, it's a solid oxidizer decontaminant. Basically, it's a paracetylborate compound, so it's a parasitic acid. Now, parasitic acids used commonly across Canada in meat processing plants at the end of the day to sterilize, decontaminate food processing equipment. Uh, it smells very strong. If you look at uh, vinegar, is about 5% acetic acid. Uh, so with the Delgren Decon, we do have a strong parasitic acid smell. What uh, we try to do as Canadian Decon Solutions is work uh, hand-in-hand with uh, some of the contractors, restoration contractors, they'll get opportunities that might arise from clients, be it private work or public work. Uh, So when we do use this product in certain areas, we do have to bring in air scrubbers, uh, the type of equipment, set up containment similar to asbestos, and we find that these restoration contractors generally are proficient at that. So we like to work hand-in-hand with them. Uh, work together to solve some of these issues. So, uh, we're going to hear some terms like efficacy, so from broad spectrum to niche. uh, The product that we use is compatible with military and civilian materials. Uh, Key is it's pH neutral. It's non-hazardous to the user or the environment. It's user-friendly. It has a, a low logistical burden. It's uh, less corrosive, lower toxicity and less harmful to the environment. So for example, we get a lot of vehicles. We're processing anywhere from three to six vehicles a month. We can apply this product onto uh, soft fabrics in a vehicle, headliners, etc. and we're not bleaching it out or damaging it. Basically we apply this product and then uh, remove the residue of the product with carpet extractors. And one of the things that we offer is we offer true chemical destruction of these synthetic opioids. Uh, So it's a patented formula. It's a solid oxidizer. We provide 25 to 30 percent weight of parasitic acid. The product, uh, it offers biological decon efficacy, which is important because a lot of these times when we're getting these recovered stolen vehicles, they're full of syringes, they're full of blood things like that. So we're not only concerned about the drugs, but when we're dealing with the intravenous uh, syringes, we have to look at things like hepatitis, tuberculosis, HIV, things like that. So we can mix it. It can be applied with any sort of pump sprayer. Uh, We mix it with a container that it comes with. The only additive required is water. And as this was developed by the US Navy, we can use fresh salt or brackish water. Uh, It's non-corrosive to the applicator. It's compatible with all commercial sprayers. A lot of restoration contractors will have a large inventory of pump sprayers, etc. We use it with electrostatic sprayers to get increased coverage. It can also be applied via industrial power sprayers, military decon applicators, etc. It's applied using a spraying method, a mist, and one to two passes is all that's needed. Uh, It can be sprayed or it can be foamed. So it's fairly simple. All the packages come with uh, mixing instructions. Uh, Because the product comes from the US, currently we have MSDS information in English and Spanish. We're currently working on getting uh, mixing (laughs) instructions and SDS information in French. Uh, Basically it comes in a three-part mixture. It's a part A, a part B1 and a part B2. I don't know why the Americans go with a B1 and a B2. I would have gone A, B, and C. Keep it simple, but it's an American thing. So once the products mixed, we've got a six-hour pot life. So it's going to be efficacious against these uh, neutralization of these synthetic opioids, methamphetamines, heroines, etc. for about six hours. After six hours it's going to start to break down. Uh, I've personally in the controlled environments with law enforcement, we've destroyed heroin in two minutes, we've destroyed methamphetamine in two to three minutes, uh, fentanyl, carfentanil, and numerous analogues of fentanyl, all in a controlled environment. Uh, One of the hardest things we do have to destroy is cocaine. It tends to stick to things. um, But the one thing with the cocaine is we don't have the dermal exposure risks that we have with these other drugs like synthetic opioids. Uh, at the end of the pot life with Decon, the chemistry, it breaks down basically to water and vinegar and a salt. Uh, it's the equivalent to a medical grade hydrogen peroxide and white vinegar. And again, one of the keys here is that it's pH neutral, so we can use it to clean soft fabrics, uh, clothing, etc. Uh, As Ian had mentioned, we try to provide cost-effective solutions, so when we're cleaning up a drug house, etc., if we've got uh, cheap textiles, things like that, it tends to be cheaper to dispose of them uh, than to try to recover them and spend the money on that. Now just touching on um, the drug houses that we've done to date, it tends to be private work. Uh, That large drug house was worth 1.4 million dollars. The bad guys were arrested, they failed on their mortgage. Uh, so the finance company, the bank actually, the mortgage holder, retained us to go in and clean the property. Uh, the other house, the first one, which was one of the biggest car fentanyl ones, the bad guy got out on bail, but his assets were frozen, and he couldn't get access to his house because the uh, buildings department came and put a do not occupy on the home. So we ended up getting paid, I think, on three credit cards. Um... It's like anything for the restoration contractors. You always want to ensure you're going to get paid, and there's always a greater risk when you're dealing with private work as opposed to insurance carriers. Uh, To date, I haven't seen any homes covered by insurance carriers. Um, We have vehicles that are being covered, so recovered stolen vehicles that are impacted by drug use while they're stolen from the uh, vehicle owner. Uh, we do get calls. I've responded uh, a couple times now for big box stores where there was an overdose in a bathroom. I won't say the name of the, con- the large company, but on a Saturday afternoon, a gentleman overdosed and actually it was a fatality in a washroom. Uh, this store, you know, has thousands of people going through their doors in a day. Um, I will say First On Site called me out from where I was. Uh, we do have a working arrangement with them. Uh, so basically, we got called to go in and clean this washroom, assess the washroom. Uh, we sampled it with our ion scanner. We proved the contamination. We then neutralized the threat. We cleaned up not only the drug residue, but we also had to clean up. There was some blood and vomit, et cetera, from the gentleman when he overdosed. And we got the washroom back up and going. I'm sure you guys can appreciate a big box store and their volume of clients on a Saturday having a washroom down for a couple hours. I won't mention their name because I have to protect their brand. Um, So some of the form factors we have for Delgren Decon. Uh, We have ready to use a 22 ounce kit tends to be the most popular. This will cover up to 400 square feet. We have one gallon kits that come condensed and they'll do a small area of 1500 square feet uh... we have five gallon kits which we haven't used today that's going to be for a large scale or a full house uh... some of the products so during use the PES solid advantageously releases parasitic acid immediately upon dissolution in water so once we mix the product it's good to go and we're actually destroying these contaminants via oxidization so we're breaking them down to non-detect As Ian had mentioned earlier, there are some people out there that'll say they'll clean something. So if we had powdered drug residue on the table and I wipe it down with a wet cloth, I might collect that drug residue and then I put that cloth in the bucket. Basically, we've just transitioned that hazard from the table when it's dry to a bucket which is now it's wet. There is the potential once that dries out for those drugs to become airborne and become a hazard again. So one of the keys with uh, Delgren Decon is we offer true chemical destruction of these risks. Uh, we, and again, we can apply by sprayer. We can just wipe it down with a cloth. Uh, unlike other decontaminants, the PES solid activates immediately. And again, it's safe and user-friendly in the field. So the best way we find to apply the product is electrostatic sprayers what these do is it adds a negative charge so if you've got a conventional sprayer and you're spraying something round or spraying something like a glass a conventional sprayer you're going to spray like this your overspray is going to shoot past with the electrostatic your overspray actually will adhere to the back of poles, spindles, banisters etc there is a cost to these uh, but I have people like restoration contractors that are buying these. You can um, apply, you know, your Benefact, any of your other sort of decontaminant uh, mold type sprays, and you get a far better coverage. With the electrostatic charge, when you hit um, uh, vertical surfaces, because the electrostatic charge, it helps it achieve a dwell time. So the electrostatic will make it stick to surfaces for a longer period of time. It's a little bit more applicable when you get into some of the higher-end products that you could be applying for mold, etc. So just some advantages there with the electrostatic versus the conventional pump sprayer. It's also a lot faster. We have for the drug houses these small electrostatic sprayers, and then we also have the backpack one you might have seen in Ian's presentation earlier. So to give you an idea of what uh, one of our 22-ounce kits will cover, it'll cover up to 400 square feet. So one of the 22-ounce kits is perfect for like a police holding cell, uh, the interior of a vehicle, uh, small areas like that. It'll give you adequate coverage. When you get into rooms and things like that, that square footage gets eaten up pretty quick with dressers and tabletops, uh, things like that. So one of the things that uh, differentiates us from some of our competitors, some of our competitors and other products out there on the market when they're doing testing, they'll dissolve fentanyl and methanol and then they apply their solution to the fentanyl or these synthetic opioids. Our products all been tested on bulk powders. We sell this product to the police and the military. We want to make sure that this is going to be effective against bulk powders, not something dissolved. So we guarantee at fentanyl, one to one ratio with a dwell time of two minutes, we're offering 100% decon efficacy. With carfentanol applied at two to one, we're neutralizing carfentanol 100% within five minutes, and we guarantee this. Uh, one of the hardest to dissolve so far is fentanyl hydrochloride. Uh, fentanyl hydrochloride, because of the salts, we have to apply up to five parts of Delgrun decon to one part of the powder. And this is gonna give us a 99.9%. Now a lot of these cases are sort of one-offs. These are full-blown milling operations, drug houses that were called into post-law enforcement. Um, that one basement that Ian had mentioned, that house in Pickering, if I would've taken my finger and run it along the wall in the basement, you would actually see powder residue. This was a full-blown milling house. These guys had APRs and PPE. This was a full-blown drug production house. Yeah, so generally when you're getting the synthetic opioids, they're bringing the powders, they're cutting the powders, and then you can buy pill presses. Now, pill presses are illegal in Ontario, Alberta, and BC. You need to have a license to own a pill press. It's actually illegal. Um, what they're doing is they're making fake oxys, fake Xanax, fake Norcos, hydromorphine. Um, I bought my ion scanner in March of last year. And I come across these recovered stolen vehicles. We find pills. I've seen some really good oxycodones, uh, 80 mils to date. And my machine will detect oxy. I have not found an actual oxy since March. So we're almost on a year. Every oxy I come across is fake. It comes up W18, fentanyl, carfentanyl. And this is a, a big thing. Um, the fake Xanax out there. A lot of people think they're taking a Xanax. They think they're taking an Oxy, when in fact they're not. We've got um, what we call sort of the naive victims. You know, maybe the soccer mom on a Wednesday night, she thinks she's having a glass of wine and a Xanax. Well, it's not a real Xanax. Uh, you can buy, like the pill, uh, the pill presses are illegal, but you can actually buy the tablets and the stamps, and they'll press a thing that says, oxy and with the 80s you can buy that green dye same thing with the xanax i've seen some xanax that look really good and i've seen some xanax that look really bad There are potential cases where they do, because one of the problems when you, if you're mixing powders in a pharmaceutical setting, so Pfizer, AstraZeneca, you need collision to mix powders. What these drug guys are doing, we go in and they'll have six, eight, 10 blenders. They'll have the Mr. Bullet, the magic bullet or whatever it is. They'll have the blenders. Well, you can't properly mix powders, centrifuge like this. You need collision of powders to get a proper mix. So what you get is, you might make 100 Xanax, one Xanax might have, and you gotta remember, because they're using this stuff and it's so potent, only 3% of that pill, maybe 3 to 5% of that pill is the actual active ingredient, the carfentanil, the W18, the rest is cut, sucrose, dextrose, et cetera. So you might get a tablet that has 2 to 3%, and that's gonna get you high. I might get a tablet that has 10%, it's gonna get me really high. Ian takes a pill that's got 80%, and he ends up overdosing. That's where we have the problem there. And it's, we call them the sort of the naive, you know. A lot of people talk about and say, well, it's, it's just the druggies. It's just them happening. There's school kids that are overdosing. Like, has anyone here got any experience with a friend, a family member that's OD'd or lost anyone? Like, it, it's fairly common. I, I have a friend who's in law enforcement who lost her son. He made a bad decision on New Year's Eve. He took a pill. Everyone else in the room was taking a pill and he ended up overdosing and he was a fatality by the time they found him in the morning. So it's, it's common. There was, what did we have, 2007? So overdoses for Canada in 2017, there was just over 4,000 people. I think it was 2071, was it? That, or sorry, 1,000? It was almost 2,000 of those people were in Ontario. It comes, um, BC is the number one. Obviously, the drugs tend to start there. The second was Alberta. And the third was Ontario for overdoses. So I always stress to people no street drugs, no powder drugs, no pills. I tell everyone on their kids because it's just not real. It's too easy for somebody to go and order. I mean, we can, you go on Google right now, and I could order up fentanyl, carfentanyl off my phone with a credit card number from China it'll be here in five to ten days I can order the guaranteed shipment so if it gets intercepted by the RCMP I can say I didn't get it and I'll give them Ian's address and then they'll ship it to Ian's address and if it gets intercepted on the way to Ian's house then I can say you know send it to somebody else's address
1: so you
0: my apartment. it's it's just <laughs> it's just too easy for people to get this whereas you know the heroin and that it had to be Grown, you know, there was a season and then it had to be imported and smuggled into the country. It's just too easy to order the stuff from overseas, from China. And they can't intercept everything in the mail. Well, that's, fentanyl is the active ingredient. That's what the street drug guys are putting in. That's what's going to give people the buzz. You cut, you know, fentanyl into heroin. You can buy pure heroin. Uh, you cut it with fentanyl. You can order as small as $800 worth of fentanyl and it can be shipped to you. And then once you get it, then you can cut your other drugs. So they're cutting it into cocaine. They're cutting it into methamphetamine. Yeah, so, okay. Okay, so there's a lot of misinformation out there. So, pyrolysis, combustion of fentanyl. Um, A cigarette burns at about 300 degrees just when it's sitting. When you inhale that cigarette, it's going to be about 800 degrees Celsius. So, you could vaporize fentanyl. Fentanyl can be vaporized up to about 300 degrees. Fentanyl, it can be burned. So, these vape pens that kids have, they're about 280 to 300 degrees. When you get up over 320 degrees, fentanyl reverts back to aniline, some of its precursors, um, styrene, et cetera, so it wouldn't be palatable. And a lot of people always tell me fentanyl's in the marijuana, it's not. If, if you had a, a marijuana cigarette that had fentanyl in with it, it's not there. The taste would be so unpalatable, you wouldn't want anything to do with it. Aniline, one of the precursors for fentanyl, smells strong, strong like fish oil. And I can't really get in. Fentanyl to make is not that hard. I, don't, I can't get into for obvious reasons on how to make it. But the combustion of fentanyl, I can assure you, in a vape pen potentially, but in a marijuana cigarette or in a bong or in a pipe, it's not gonna happen. If, if, if you tasted it, the, the taste would be so unpalatable you'd stop smoking. Oh, yeah, so so fentanyl, the, the hardcore drug users want it. They look for it. They'll take fentanyl over heroin. Fentanyl will appease your heroin addiction. If you're addicted to heroin and you get pure fentanyl, it will appease your heroin addiction. This uh, purple fentanyl that they're talking about, I don't know if you guys have heard of that. It's a, it's a mixture of W18, carfentanil and fentanyl. They diet, it's a specialty mixture. Um, Certain dealers, might, you might make yours yellow, I'll make mine green, she'll make hers purple, and then we can sort of compare or, hey, the purple's the, the best one on the streets this week. Uh, have you tried the purple?
1: Thinking, just kill
0: you. Sorry? How are you not dead? Uh, well, because it's cut. Again, the active drug and the powders that they're taking is only about three to five percent. But if they don't mix it properly and you get a 15% dose or a 20% dose, you're going down fast. Um, A lot of the places too, when we go into these drug places, so if you guys are going in as adjusters or as restoration contractors, if you're going into a home and you see a naloxone kit, then that's something you should be aware of. And I've got pictures here. So when I go to these drug houses or in these drug cars, I'll find sometimes 20 of these empty. So it comes two ways. The naloxone either comes as an injection or as a nasal. And It's Narcan, or the brand name. So these are some of the warning things. You know, if you go into a house as either a restoration contractor or an adjuster, what do you do if you see syringes? You know, do you have to still go through and do your job, or do you back out? Okay. They didn't have time to get it out, or I guess with its legal now. It's tough, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if the onus is on you to report it or not, but if you're seeing syringes, like the, the biggest thing I run into is syringes and a lot of them are bent. Um, I had a car that I had to remediate and on the armrest for the driver's door, this person was stabbing the syringes, snapping the needle off, and then throwing the plastic out the window. So when I opened the car door, there was about eight little bits of syringe sticking up that if you would have put your arm there on the armrest, you would have stabbed yourself there. Just, uh, these guys, a lot of these guys have mental health, they're addicted, you know, mental health issues, they're, they're not thinking right. Like when you get to this point, your whole life evolves around getting your fix, scoring your drugs and going from there. So just some of the things to think about if you're coming across that. Now, I know some contractors out in Western Canada, um, on-site restoration in B.C. had and Surrey had guys trained their staff for naloxone. So this is something that comes up. If your staff are going into public housing or into some of these high drug use areas, um, if you're going to outfit your staff with the naloxone, which is the antidote, Is it going to be just for your staff? Or do you want your staff administering it if there's a guy passed out on the ground? (laughs) Um, And then there's a whole bunch of issues. It's not as simple as just going to Shoppers Drug Mart and getting one of these kits. Now, individually, everyone here, we can go to any of the drugstores and we can get one of these kits. They will take your health card. They bill OHIP, I think, $270 for a kit. But it might not be a bad idea if you have one of these kits. Now, things to think about if you have these kits: Do you leave it in the car? You know, it's cold weather environment now. So, do you want to? If somebody had to give a syringe to somebody, are they capable of giving a syringe? Um, the nasal is a lot easier. I think everyone would be far more comfortable with a nasal. And again, you know, I would suggest this is for your colleagues or your coworkers. I wouldn't suggest if you want to get expose your staff to administering this to people on the street. Go ahead. survived, the paramedics got there in time for one, and then the other one had already gone, someone drooled them to the hospital, and they used the naloxone kit, so after that moment, a lot of the kids just went and bought them, for if they're ever going to have people over, or have a party, or whatever, um, and, but my question is, is one more effective than the other? So, the, there's benefits to both, so the nasal's going to be ease of use, Um, You have to watch if somebody's got deviated septum, if they've had a broken nose, maybe some of the guys, or if we snore a lot, it can be hard. Basically, you're administering the naloxone, you're spraying it up there, and it's making contact with your brain. Uh, It's going to work a little bit faster. There is the injectable, but now with the injectable, with this, I could rip this open. You know, I should have brought one here today. Um, I could rip this open, and it's fairly convenient if you're on the ground to administer it, I mean, it's not, it, uh, it Yeah, I'll get into what it does and how it knocks the opioid off your receptors but if you're ever going to administer this you better phone 911 because this is an interim uh, if somebody ingested one of these pills, it takes up to four hours for your body to absorb and process the pills and the drugs that are there. This person, if they got a pill that was say 80% or not properly mixed, you could administer the naloxone an hour into this, you're going to knock the opioid receptors off, you're going to bring them around, in about 15 minutes when this wears off, they're going to go back into ODing because their body is still absorbing this. So Anytime you're applying naloxone, make sure that you're calling 911 and the person's going to an ambulance. Um, if you're, if it's one of your colleagues that goes down, if you're administering it and if somebody else is with you, have them get a cell phone ready because most people, when this is administered, projectile vomit. I've gone to clean up enough of these where they're in a washroom, so just bear in mind if you are administering that to somebody. Um, be prepared for that. Now normally you want to administer it if there are eight, uh, less than 8 perspirations per minute, so if they're breathing less than 8 times per minute. Uh, and again as I said be prepared. If someone's telling you I'm OD'ing, I need naloxone don't give it to them, they don't need it. If they're conscious enough to say I'm overdosing, I need this, they don't. Um, but it's fairly common when you see the drug users or if you're into a house to clean up a property and if you see a bunch of these kits laying around That's a warning sign for you that they're using these type of drugs. Now the syringe uh, comes with two. You actually have to break an ampule, Then you have to draw the serum up into the syringe. And then it's intermuscular. So you're going to stab it into the meaty part of the thigh, the butt, the shoulder, the arm, etc. One thing I like with this is... Once you expel the contents of the syringe, it's got a spring load on the needle, so the needle will retract. So that if you're doing first aid or CPR, you don't need to worry about being pricked with a syringe. If you had this, and if somebody was overdosing, and I had one of these kits, and there was another drug user with them, I would probably pass this off to the other drug user because they're comfortable, they're used to giving, administering syringes, and I'd let them do it. I don't know if anyone's... Has anyone here given a syringe to anyone before? Okay. Maybe diabetics or things like that, or if you had to. I haven't had to do it. I know if one of my guys went down and if it was a life or death that I would be able to do it, but I think this is a better option. So again, any of you can go. These kits last about two years. They've got an expiry date, but I would keep it in a laptop bag or something that you take inside. If you're leaving it in a vehicle in these temperatures, it's going to be hard to administer to somebody uh well he could you know a car could get pretty hot too in the summertime as an opposite uh so any questions from anyone Go ahead. so the syringe is
1: that the same as the, you know, the uh,
0: respirator one where you it's the, the same solution minutes, depending like if if you're going to be administering naloxone to somebody i'm going to be phoning 911 and something you have to watch so the guys that work for me are full-time firefighters they work for me part-time a lot of times when you administer naloxone to somebody if they're a junkie you can throw them into withdrawal so you've just ruined their high you know they just stole twenty dollars in copper to get high and you've just wrecked that high for them so a lot of times they come up swinging a lot of my uh, colleagues that are paramedics etc they're actually strapping people down now and they're maybe administering half. They're not gonna give them the full dose. They only want to administer enough of the antidote to bring that person around till they're breathing. We don't want them getting up. There's cases where you can administer that, the guy gets up and runs away down the road. Now, if you're a police officer, you gotta chase the guy down. So I think it's more a comfort level. You had a question?
1: Obviously
0: has to be breathing Uh well. It's not like they're inhaling it, so you're actually spraying it up the nose and you're making contact on the receptors for the brain. So it's just getting in there through mucous membranes and that. Yeah. And that's when they vomit? Either way they're gonna chances are they're gonna projectile vomit. This is why
1: you saying is a and Yep.
0: Well, you'd be calling an ambulance. Any time you're going to administer this, you're calling an ambulance because they're going to show up, the professional. Well, for them, so if somebody ingested a pill, chances are if one of like, the regular people in this room that are out there doing their job, if they come in and say there was some powder on a table, they inhale it, then that's where they're going to be their route of exposure. So the antidote, call 911. The EMS will be there to address it. Uh, where we run into the issues is when people eat the pills or they're swallowing the pills like you had talked about the kids at the party. Your body can take up to four hours to absorb that pill. Oh, so it's not the same as our PMs go in and they touch the it. Depends on the yeah. route of ingestion. Yeah, the route of ingestion and then the concentration. I mean, if you walk into a room and it's saturated with powders, etc. You know, there, that's where you sort of have to do your field level risk assessment and decide do you want to go into this or do you not want to go into this you know you've got your right to to refuse can, can that stuff hurt somebody if you maybe thought they were on drugs but they were distra- It can't they say they can't, say they can't. I, I don't really want to <laughs> it to myself but so they say they say that it won't hurt you if you were on something else or if somebody was just passed out or but you know again if you're going to give this to your staff you want to make sure your staff aren't just running around because there's a guy passed out on the corner and administering it for liability issues. There are some medical companies that are training. See, if, if you as a company decide to implement this at your company, then it's like anything. You have to give a person training on it. You have to have records on it. You know, You want to ensure that they're properly trained on how to identify the signs of an overdose and how to administer it. You might be able to look Red Cross, St. John's Ambulance if there's somebody local. And again, you know, you sort of have to look. Are you dealing with, like, public housing or certain parts of town where there's chances of encountering this is there? Yeah. So uh, we did pass out. There's uh, some flyers there on how we work uh, with EFI Global. Um, There's some information there. Feel free to take it back. If you have any questions, uh, Ian and myself are here and available after lunch to answer anything one-on-one. Uh, we do, Canadian Decon Solutions does offer training uh, on the product and that. Um, and we're always looking to develop partnerships. I do come from Hamilton, so for me to get called out here, it's, it's quite a ways to go. Uh, but one of the keys is there are some other companies out there trying to do this. Make sure they have the proper training, the proper equipment. If you are looking to get a contractor, And like anything else with the insurance, you know, if we're doing asbestos, if we're doing molds, I always work hand in hand with an independent consultant. We want to make sure we've got those checks and balances in the project. All right? All right, thanks for your time, guys. All right, everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode of WP Radio. There'll be more content coming shortly, and thanks again for your time. Don't forget to go to WP Digital and check out our page on YouTube and check all the content we put on for you so far this year. We really appreciate it.